This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Excited for this episode. Uh, There's a lot going on in markets and we love the fact that we get to pick the brains of experts and trying to figure out what's going on. That's it. Well, speaking of experts, a reminder before we start, we're not experts. We're not financial professionals. We are not licensed. We're here learning just like you and nothing on this podcast should be taken as advice. Do not take financial advice from a podcast, but it is our pleasure to welcome Nathan Bell to Equity Mates. Nathan, how are you? I'm well, boys. So Nathan uh, is head of research and portfolio management at InvestSmart. He discovered value investing after spending nine years years as an accountant, including five at Deutsche Bank, that ended in 2006 and has been with Intelligent Investor ever since. He is a CFA charter holder and his experience has guided their uh, strong performance at InvestSmart since 2011. So hoping to pick your brains yeah. on that. <laughs> hoping Nathan. to get some of that guidance today, Nathan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the irony is I think I've done a lot better for our investors than I've done for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nathan, before we get into all of that, we love to start these interviews by hearing about your first investment. We generally find there's a good lesson or story that comes out of it. So can you take us back and tell us the story of your first investment? Yeah, I've got a classic uh, Tabcorp when it uh, first listed as an IPO when the government uh, sold it off. I reckon it was uh, maybe about 1994 and I reckon I was at uh, maybe the end of year 12 or start of university and I had a little bit of money from working at Kmart during the school holidays and I remember I come from Mount Gambier in country South Australia and, and I always knew for some reason I wanted to be an investor. I, I think it came down to the fact that uh, my parents were divorced when I was young. We never had any money and I just wanted I wanted something else. I, just, I was tired of always struggling 
And this, this stock market just seemed to be this place where all you had to do was have the right opinion and you had to have patience. And there was something about the grit and the patience that I just just I understood just in my DNA. And I, it wasn't about being the smartest person. It was about being sensible and having common sense. But really that, that idea of grinding it out and that sort of something that for some reason appealed to me, but it didn't appeal to me when it came to my Aussie rules footy career. <laughs> so in the border watch was the local paper. And I remember uh, Tabcorp, uh, had the IPO and this guy said, I think it listed at $1.35. And he said, look, I, th- I think this stock's going to be worth $4 over time. And I thought I was a long-term investor. And after six months, I got frustrated because the share price hadn't gone anywhere. And I gave up and I sold my stock and I made a classic profit of one cent after <laughs> brokerage fees. Um, Love that. Now, now, I think that stock went on, the, um, I'm actually not exactly sure because it's been in so many uh, reincarnations mm. uh, since that original float, but I think that it was at least a four or five-fold increase uh, eventually, if not maybe even ten. Um, so it was an enormous lost opportunity and I really got lost in the wilderness for a long time after that, trying all sorts of different things like technical analysis and just a whole heap of wasted time. So it was a good experience uh, in one sense and I think one of the worst experiences some people can have is actually make a lot of money on a punt, particularly when they're young and they think it's easy and then when they've actually got some meaningful money behind them, they end up losing it because mm. they, they think they can just pick anything. And uh, So there's good lessons there but uh, I wish I had probably learned some better lessons about long term investing. So from that experience, Nathan, how would you describe your investment philosophy today? So I've been a professional investor since 2006 and I call myself a value investor and there's always this, uh, you know, I don't know whether it hits the, the guys at your age, whether you get this deep into it, but there's this idea that a value investor somehow has got to buy these cheap ugly, cheap statistical businesses on high dividend yields and low price to earnings ratios. And somehow by buying cheap, you make all this money as you know, the people or the market recognises that actually it's a better business than what it's being priced at. Now, Warren Buffett, who's considered the greatest value investor in history, has actually been telling everyone who will listen for about 40 years that the best way to make money is to buy the best businesses and the ones that can reinvest their profits at the highest rate of return for the longest. And to me, that's what value investing really is, is the compromise between those two things because essentially you've got to pick between a few key attributes of all, of all businesses and whether it's management, the growth of the company, the quality of the company, and then what the valuation is telling you. You're never in a market where things are perfect. You know, you occasionally you get into a GFC, and you, and you, but even then you've got to make a choice. Do I buy the absolute best businesses on the market? They're going to, going to compound my wealth at 15% a year for the next 20 years? Or do I buy those really deeply discounted stocks that are, are being particularly impacted by whatever the current events of the day are, where you might be able to make 10 times your money in like a couple of years, but you know that once you've made that 10-bagger, you then have to sell it and pay tax and then find the next stock. And by that time, you know, all the great stocks have recovered to full prices again. So that's really what the balance of, I think, value investing is all about. But to anyone young listening, to me, you know, the best advice I could give anyone is just find the best business you can find 
and put all your money in it and just let it grow <laughs> and do nothing and don't listen to anyone else. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, that there's easy. There's a lot of mistakes that get made. It, that, that's easy to be said. It really said. is. It, the, the challenge is just finding that the best business. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. anyway, we'll ask you that later. <laughs> <laughs> but Nathan, before we get there, um, I, I reckon if you surveyed all investing content across social media, podcasts, written stuff, even in you know the AFR, all of that, 90% plus would be, about what to buy and there's very little discussed about actually how you build and then manage a portfolio of stocks. And so uh, your part of your role at um, InvestSmart and Intelligent Investor is head of portfolio management. And so we're really interested to, to talk about that for a moment and talk about not just finding that stock, but then how you actually manage a portfolio of stocks. So uh, to start broadly, um, do you have any key principles of portfolio management that you apply across across InvestSmart's portfolios? Yeah, look, this is a, a fantastic topic and I'm glad you've brought it up because it's sort of almost, I think, what most people consider one of the more, more boring topics of investing and you really don't hear anything about it. Yet, it is, to me, the most critical part of putting a portfolio together because the amount of money you invest in a stock compared to the overall size of the portfolio to me, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's where ego is involved, the confidence in your analysis, the trying to be balanced about the risks. Yet, if you don't put enough into the great business and it goes up tenfold over a decade, you don't really make much money. Yet, you put too much into a bad stock that doesn't work out and you lose too much money. And there's no rules for this. And that's what makes it. It's, it's an art. It's not science. It's an art. Uh, but there are definitely a few rules um, that govern the way I manage the portfolios at Intelligent Investor. And this is a case of do what I say and not what I do because personally I run a, a very concentrated portfolio <laughs> and I don't recommend that for most people. Um, I just don't think people can stomach the swings and, and being wrong. And you, I think you do need to be an expert and be on top of your stocks all the time if you're going to do that. But um, the one principle for me is always never put a lot of money in a lousy, low-quality business where you can't stomach the losses. And the thing you have to remember with a professional portfolio is you're not investing for you personally. So what you know, what risk is and the, the amount of volatility in the portfolio for me might be very, very comfortable, and it is. But to you know your nan and pop or your parents who can't afford to lose any money, who aren't working anymore and are relying on that dividend income or those capital gains over time, you know that's a very serious obligation. And there's a certain expectation that um, if you're very lucky and you run maybe a small portfolio of just friends and family, that you might be able to impress on them the understanding of volatility doesn't mean risk. Uh, and it's a very hard concept, I think, for people to understand because it's all well and good in a bull market, but as soon as you get into a bear market and the portfolio is going down and the people don't really understand the businesses that they own, they panic and sell out. So there's a certain amount of volatility I think our investors can handle, but there's a certain amount that they can't. So normally I, I sort of have in my head um, the 246 principle. Uh, it doesn't work exactly like that, but the 6% is reserved for what I think are the cheap, highest quality businesses when I first buy them. You know, the 4%, I'd say, is an average holding because we tend to run with about 25 stocks in the portfolio. But I find once you get into the 20s, the quality of the ideas are pretty poor. <laughs> uh, but I also find if you only have 15 stocks, then you've, you know, you've got about 7% invested in each one, and some of those are going to be small caps. So if they have a, a really bad result or they just don't work out, now, that's a big loss for people to take fairly quickly. So um, I find the 25 is, tends to be where the balance lies. And, and remember, you've probably your best, your top 10 stocks 
are the ones that drive the performance of your portfolio. So as long as they're right, the rest takes care of itself and you've probably got a bunch of stocks that you're slowly selling out of, uh, plus another bunch of stocks where you're not quite sure yet or maybe they're risky for some reason but could have big returns, so they're the smaller positions. So you tend to have sort of quite a long tail where um, the top 10 stocks are probably 50 to 60% of your portfolio and then you've got the 30 or 40 in the smaller stuff. So if you're wrong or something goes wrong, you know, it's a manageable risk and you move on. Mm, love that. So the 2% is really safe for the more um, speculative stuff. I mean, we are looking for the high-quality stuff, but you just find smaller stocks sometimes that carry risks and maybe we'll talk about them later. And you, you want something in There's no point putting half a percent or 1% in them mm. usually because even if they work out, they're probably not going to do anything, although – you know, we've been invested in Whitehaven Coal at a dollar, you know, 15 months ago, and now it's eight dollars. So you only need one one percent in that. Um, but uh, that's not usually how it works. I'd say the average is four percent. And again, if it's a new stock, you probably want to build up your knowledge of it a bit over time. So you might want to start smaller to begin with, and then as you get more confident, you might invest more. That's there's certainly no way to really feel like you own a stock until you actually own some of it. So one thing I do occasionally is just buy a very small bit of it. Uh, and then just follow it and get to know it because you don't really understand a business, in my view, until you listen to the CEO speak three months, six months, 12 months, and then you really, really know what's going on and you can really check whether this is BS and whether this is a guy who's really in it for the right reasons. And um, it just takes a bit of time sometimes to get that right. So I guess the follow on from that. So as a retail investor, we're sitting here and we happen to get a, a stock that 10 bags or what whatnot, and it becomes a large portion of our portfolio. We're loving it. It looks great. Do you, um, if, if that were to happen to you, you know, you've got the 6% rule there for the greats. Do you make sure that you don't allow a stock to balloon too much or how do you let a stock run without kind of cutting cutting that opportunity short. Yeah, Peter Lynch, I'm sure you've heard this, always says, um, you know, don't cut the flowers and water the weeds. So mm. you really need to be careful. And what you, and there's an old, uh, I think it's a money man- management adage or maybe it's a trader adage that uh, you, let, you want to let your profits run. So, and, and I'd also add on to that, that when you get those stocks right, and, you, and you, I hear this about CSL all the time, right? So, you know, there's a lot of people who CSL makes up 70 or 80% of their portfolio because it's just done so well since they got shares in the IPO in 1992 or whenever it was. And they say, you know, I, I'm not sure what to do with it. I, I know this is an outrageous amount of my portfolio, but if I sell it, I've got this enormous, enormous capital gains that's probably the equivalent of like paying 60% of the share price once I pay the tax. Mm. And if the share price fell by 40%, I'd be buying more of the stock. So, so uh, I actually think if you can handle it, because every stock can fall by 50% or more at any time for some reason, and particularly CSL in the sense, I think everyone thinks it's the safest business on the market and then arguably is certainly one of them, but technology changes, world moves on. Sometimes they miss a particular product launch or a particular part of um, you know the healthcare economy and um, solutions and if they miss that and I know competitors are working on a lot of blood products trying to catch up to CSL so if they work and prices come down for their products you know whatever it is if you can't stomach that 50% then and you can't sleep at night then you've got too much but in terms of the portfolios that Intel's investor we're only allowed to hold a maximum of 15% in any one stock at any time and so let's say I put in that full whack of 6% at the start and it, you know, it's up 150%, then I'm forced to start trimming that. But once, once we're getting to nine or 10%, like that's a, you're taking on a lot of reputation risk, I think, as a, 
fund manager and a lot of people I think aren't willing to admit that they'll make decisions based on reputation and business risk and career risk uh, rather than just focusing fully on the investment because if you now we saw this years ago in the US as a bunch of head funds like Valiant Pharmaceuticals was one one of the business fund managers with the highest reputation ever in history had 30% of their portfolio in Valiant and it blew up. Mm. Uh, you know, this is a business that had been around for, f- I think, 40 or 50 years and Warren Buffett had recommended it to his clients when he decided to stop managing his own clients' money. So it takes 40, you know, 40 or 50 years to build the reputation of this business and it took five minutes to lose it. So you're always trying to strike that balance between hanging on to your winners because if you've got, if you know you've got the great business, you know it inside out, you understand the risks. Once you sell it, you bring all these new risks into it. You've got to find a new stock. It won't be as good. It'll be more risky. Uh, you know, and then you've got to pay the tax. So there's all these costs of selling these great business. And I, I think it's a great question. And again, it just shows you the art of investing and it's so personal. You know, carrying 15% in one stock for you might be absolutely fine. For someone else, they might think you're crazy and, you know, 4% is a big position for them. So as a mentor of mine always says, investing is such an individual journey, but you've got to bring that individual journey to a bunch of, um, you know, mums and dads and, and that's very different from managing your own portfolio. Mm. Well, speaking of the portfolios you manage at InvestSmart, there, I, I believe you manage three, you might manage more. There's an ethical fund, an equity growth fund and an equity income fund. Uh, how do you think about managing the different portfolios and are there different rules that you have to apply to each of them or do the principles sort of carry across them all? So I start in my fantasy world where every stock is cheap <laughs> and it's growing at 20% a year. And it has a dividend yield of 5% fully franked. And therefore, all three portfolios have the same 20 or 25 <laughs> stocks in them and I don't have to do anything. Would be so nice. starting from that base, <laughs> so starting from that base, the one with the most freedom by far is the growth fund. And, and the ones with the, um, you know, the, the big hurdles on them are the income fund because obviously you've got to have a competitive yield. Um, you know, I'd say as it's more of a dividend growth fund necessarily than I think a classic income fund that a lot of people probably think where they're just trying to maximise the dividend yield and the franking credits. We still have to outperform the market by 1%. That's what we've told people. So we really need growth in that income portfolio. So so the classic stock for me, um, the one that went right across all three portfolios. Um, So just lastly, the ethical fund obviously has the ESG filter on it. So no fossil fuel companies, no gambling, just just all the main things that um, people will understand. And there's nothing unique in our filter but the perfect stock for us was a, a company called Pinnacle Funds Management. And I'd followed this company for a long time. I'd bought a little bit of it uh, and it fitted perfectly for all three portfolios. It was a rapidly growing business. You know, it's grown earnings and dividends at 50% a year for the last four years. Wow. Um, you know, had insider owner man- management, which I, I love, is something that's really important to me, which we might get to later. Uh, and it paid because fun- when these funds management businesses are going great, their, their profit margins are absolutely enormous because you don't have to pay anything for the next dollar of revenue. It all just goes straight to the bottom line so they can pay out all their profits as dividends you know, and they were fully franked. So when we got the bear market three years ago and the stock fell to $2.50, I bought more of that stock and you know, made it a 4 or 5% position across all three portfolios. Today, that stock's trading about $11, but it was on, went to 20 come back to 6 and now it's back to 11 but the fully franked dividend yield at the moment without the franking credits on that $2.50 purchase price 
is 14.5%. Wow. No, like that to, that to me is dividend investing. Mm. I just want a portfolio full of 25 pinnacles in all three. <laughs> but, but I know with the income fund, I have to at least be competitive with the yield of the ASX, which at the moment is about 5%, but it's being juiced up by the iron ore miners. So, you know, on an underlying basis, assuming the iron ore price comes down and dividends get cut a bit more, you know, maybe it's, let's say it's 4.3%. So, I can't go out there and say this is an income fund with a yield of 2% because otherwise it's just like the growth fund. Um, in saying that, I will just say that the distribution did get cut uh, quite drastically for 12 months during um, the COVID bear market because a whole bunch of companies we owned and bought, uh, which were the best, you know, the airports, the casinos, you know, but they all cut their dividends during that period. So, um, so they're all bouncing back now, which is fine. But uh, I really want to keep the portfolios as simple as possible. And I, that's the biggest lesson I'd say to anyone listening is keep your investing simple because every time in my life where I've tried to make it, you know, chase returns or diversify overseas or whatever, like there's been definitely some gains at times, but the thing that works best is keep it simple. So I just try as much as I can to have a cool bunch of great companies across all three portfolios and that makes it a lot easier. So uh, Nathan, before we turn our attention to earnings season, uh, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So Nathan, earnings season, we're uh, in the thick of it here in Australia. It's been going on for about a month now over in the States. What have you learned so far about um, what the companies have been reporting or some of the guidance that they've been um, delivering and anything that you'll be keeping an eye on um, going into the next reporting season? Look, the thing is, there's been a lot of lack of guidance, which you probably expect uh, from people because the earnings are looking backwards right over the past 12 months. And the last 12 months is not going to be indicative of what it's going to be like most likely for the next 12 to 18 months where interest rates are finally going to start having an impact on the economy because keep in mind that most of the world's on fixed interest rates on their mortgage rates. You know, so America doesn't have variable interest rates. So they're putting up their interest rates. Australia at the moment, I think about 45% of all loans are still on fixed mortgage rates. So it's going to be at least another year before we see higher more, uh, you know, higher interest rates across the board really start to impact the economy. 
So uh, you've got a lot of companies that were huge beneficiaries of COVID who are now starting to, sh you know, show much slower revenue growth as was expected. And there's still some companies that are, are hurting from the post-COVID hangover and that's going to be a slow return and airports are a good example. I mentioned the casinos. So it's really been all over the shop because you can't even say, look, this, these all the technology companies have been going great because if you look at zero and the share price has come way down, it, like it got crazy to start with, but people are worried about slowing UK subscribers, which is a huge you know, part of the value that people have priced in. Then you look at WiseTech yesterday, just you know, produced this absolute bonanza of a mm. result and you're sitting here wondering why you didn't buy it earlier. <laughs> and so, so you can't even say it's like by sector almost, right? It's just It just depends on the business. It's so unique to the business because of the unique cross-current of events we've got right across the board from the war in Ukraine and staff shortages and all the rest of it. But the one thing you can certainly say is the costs are going up profit margins are getting squeezed and valuations are still enormously high. And just to give one example, which caught my attention is Fish and Pike or Healthcare, which is a, another one of the many stories I could tell you about bailing out way too early for stupidly thinking it was expensive at $3.50. And, uh, you know, went to $35. It was probably another five bucks of dividends. You know, went to $40 and we bought it at $2.20 and sold it at $3.50 oh. many years ago <laughs> because the price to earnings ratio of like 22 looked a bit expensive. And, I, again, it's just it's yeah. Just don't fall for these PE ratios and all this sort of stuff. Just find the great businesses that are growing and hang on to them. And 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 it's all, it's all in the hanging on to them is where the money's made over a long period of time. But the earnings have really come back. Uh, you know, I think earnings per share might be lucky to be thirty five cents this year, where they were like ninety two or something the year before because. Uh, Fish and Pike or Healthcare, you may know they have a sleep apnea business. Mm. They will have, also have an oxygen therapy business. So they install these, uh, I guess, humidifiers and whatnot in hospitals. And for people who need oxygen care and the sort of range of therapies they're using it for is improving. You know, for COVID, they just bought, you know, all the hospitals said, look, we just need it all and we need it now. Mm. So I think Fish and Pike have got something like five or six years or more of hardware sales into the hospitals in 12 months. And and clearly that was unsustainable. But the interesting thing to me is the earnings look like they're going to be lucky to be about thirty five cents next year, and yet the share price has only come down to about nineteen dollars. So I was trading on a price to earnings ratio of about fifty five. Now clearly everyone's expecting the earnings growth to come back as they use more consumables, you know, because everyone's sort of overordered, if you like, in the recent years. But to me, it just shows you how people are really clamouring into what they think is safe. You know, these growth stocks that haven't failed yet or, uh, you know, more insensitive to the economic environment. And what it's doing is it's pr producing a bifurcated market where you've got these very, very you know, increasingly smaller group of high-quality businesses that people are just paying these enormous multiples for. And then you've got this sort of the reprobates, which is, you know, the cyclical stocks or coal stocks or, you know, all these companies that have been demonized for some reason and people don't want to own them because we're potentially going into a recession uh, and, in fact, the US and Europe might already be in it. And so they're trading at low valuation. So, again, you've got this conundrum of do I zag now while everyone else is still zigging, sort of repeating the crazy behavior of the previous bull market that we all thought ended you know, eight months ago because they're all just you know going into these same high-risk high stocks and a lot of them with no earnings and things or you buy these sort of lower quality, low statistically cheap stocks where if they work out, I'm actually going to get a really nice return over the next few years, but 
they are risky and not as reliable as the others. So that's how I sort of sum up the current environment and reporting season. Mm -hmm. Well, we won't ask you to answer that question of of which category you go into, Um, (laughs) but we will ask you... um, one thing that uh, I guess annoys us a little bit here is the amount of uh, jargon uh, in the investing world. And one that has got my attention recently is uh, how we call it both reporting season and earning season and it means exactly the same thing. So settle a debate for us, reporting season or earning season, which one is it? The longer time goes on and, uh, and you particularly see this in long bull markets, is it, it becomes more less of earning season and more reporting season because the abuse of EBITDA numbers and <laughs> all these new metrics we get, you know, classic bull market peak stuff, you know, and you see, it always happens. And like they say, no one rings a bell at the top of a bull market, but you can see all the evidence there, you know, the butchered earnings and EBITDA numbers. And I mean, we don't have this a lot in Australia, but in America, if anyone's ever looking at US stocks, don't just look at the cash profits or the reported earnings. Go and have a look at how much stock compensation is getting paid to these technology companies and make sure you include that. It's just phenomenal. Like we're not talking, you know, 5% different EPS. For some business, we're talking 30%, 50%. Now, these are enormous amounts of money that are essentially being given away because they don't want to pay cash uh, to all these new starts and they've got to encourage these people to come to their tech company because there's so many choices and um, it's an enormous cost. But I think Warren Buffett used to say in his books, is, you know, he, he was particularly critical of EBITDA, which is an accounting number rather than a free cash flow number, which is more important. And just who, who does, you know, I think he said something like, who does he think pays the expenses, the fairies? <laughs> well, Nathan, <laughs> that that actually leads nicely onto our next question. Um, well, Bryce and I are really interested in this concept of what matters and what doesn't. And whenever we have CEOs join us on the show, we like to ask them uh, what metrics matter and what metrics don't in their industry. Um, we both come from a retail background and you know, uh, metrics like same store sales or sales per square foot were really important, but a lot of people outside the retail industry didn't really think about them a lot. So uh, when you're analyzing a company, uh, we want to ask you that same question, what matters and what doesn't? You've said that EBITDA uh, doesn't matter. Is there anything else there that um, you really look towards or uh, anything that you think people speak a lot about that perhaps isn't that important? Yeah, I think the number one for me is the price to earnings ratio, which we still use as a shorthand to give people the impression of what expectations are built into the share price. Uh, It's actually funny, I think when you start to learn about investing, the price to earnings ratio is actually somewhat confusing because it actually should be the opposite way around, which is called the earnings yield. I think that actually makes a lot more sense to people. That's basically the profits divided by the share price. So it's like saying if I bought a company today for a dollar and I bought the whole thing and it's got profits of uh, five cents, you know, then the price to earnings ratio is 20. It's, it's the, the market value divided by the profits. But the other way around is actually, well, the earnings yield is 5%. So basically your return should be 5% plus whatever growth. And I think intuitively that actually makes a lot more sense. But for some reason, Australia adopted this um, you know, acronym, whatever it's called, in many, many years ago. It's never changed. So it actually confuses people. Because so I think people understand interest rates just, you know, genetically through mortgages and borrowing money and that type of thing. And then, but I think the, the damage it does is it teaches people to think in statistical terms as to what's cheap and expensive. And that's where you get to this rub about, you know, value investing and growth investing. And, you know, and the biggest mistake people can make is just buying that low quality stuff, trading at a discount um, and just missing out on the incredible growth and of the great businesses. And what really does matter, I think is an important one sort of tied to that is the return on equity. 
is very useful because it's more the concept than the actual number. The, the actual number does matter because, as Charlie Munger says, the, the longer you own a business, the more likely your return is going to be that return on equity figure. So it doesn't matter really how much you pay for that business. If you own it long enough, that's what your return is going to be. So you want to own the businesses producing higher return on equity, and that's why the ResMeds and the CSLs and the Domino's Pizzas trade at such big valuations because they can just continue to invest and grow their businesses at those high rates for a long time. But the statistical cheap stuff, sometimes you just, it's alluring because it feels cheap and safe, but they're the worst quality businesses. Um, but what you have to remember is just that that return on equity for the great business works for decades. And the cheap business, the longer you own it, the more likely something is to go wrong. So, um, you know, they're best avoided, but there are times when you go through those big falls um, but sometimes they're just worth it because the returns are so high and they can come so quickly. Mm. So Nathan, it's uh, that part of the interview that we really look forward to and it's picking your brains on a couple of specific stocks that you're covering. So uh, we've asked if you could bring two or three companies um, to sort of unpack and explain the thesis, why you're interested in them, how it kind of matches your investment philosophy as well. So um, over to you for the first one. Uh, yeah, what, what is it, why you like it and... Um, Perhaps a bear case as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are the what are the risks? What are the risks? Yeah. There's always plenty of them. The uh, <laughs> I'll give you a stock. I actually really didn't want to talk about it because I think my name's becoming associated with this stock, and it, it is risky in some senses. But it's just it just has this potential is huge, and I don't know many other companies <laughs> like this. And, uh, you say you don't want to talk about it, know, but then you say it's potentially huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all ears. <laughs> well, the, the problem is, is there's actually not a lot of great things to choose from at the moment because the good stuff's really expensive, which leaves you with the mediocre stuff. And I don't really want to be on record talking about the mediocre stuff in case it blows up and everyone thinks I'm an idiot. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so again, like this, is, I'm talking about this professional reputation. Like this is real, right? Mm, mm. So this company I'm associated with is uh, is Frontier Digital Ventures, and the background to it is is it's a, it operates in emerging markets, about sort of 18 different countries. It's a small stock. It's only about $350 million market cap. The guy who runs it is a guy called Sean DiGregorio, and his background was from about 2000 to 2009 as one of the senior executives at realestate.com.au. And then he got poached from there to come and fix up a company that was called iProperty, which was a similar business but uh, in Southeast Asia. And he, he 10 bagged that stock. So I think he came in and it was like 72 cents or something and he sold it back to REA Group, funnily enough, uh, at about seven bucks or something like that. So this guy has, you know, tremendous reputation. He knows these businesses inside out. And what he did was he decided to take the money that he'd made through iProperty and start his own business called Frontier Digital Ventures. Now it's a so it's in classified online classifieds for property and cars. And we know that these are amongst the greatest businesses ever created. Like you've only got to go and look at REA's results or right move in the UK. Like once you're the dominant property classified business in a country, it is the closest thing to a license to print money. But the the trick with this business, because there's always a catch, is that it operates like the gem, actually the portfolio at the moment is Zameen, which is in Pakistan. 
So who wants you know who who wants to invest in Pakistan at the moment when Sri Lanka is just you know social unrest and mm. there's a there's a little bit of tiny bit of Sri Lankan uh, business in frontier and also Myanmar where the army's taken over recently and again civil unrest so no one wants to you know no one wants this exposure in the best of times yet alone when interest rates are going around the uh, up around the world and now sovereign countries like Pakistan are running out of foreign exchange and there's a big risk to their currency but. The valuation of this stock is, um, it's probably trading, you know, I think this business could, in four years, maybe could do $200 million in revenue. The business at the moment has got it, is worth market value about $350 million. There's $30 million of cash on the balance sheet. So there's no financial risk in that sense. So you're potentially paying about a bit over one and a half times revenue. Now, recently, REA Group and these sort of companies were trading at 15 times revenue. Now, for a business, for Frontier to trade at 15 times revenue, that means it needs to have the profit margins that an REA group has. Now, I believe they'll get there over time. And one of the reasons I believe they'll get there is because they're not only just doing the advertising like REA group relies on, they're also doing, they've cracked transactions. So they're taking a lot more of the money involved in the property sector in addition to what leads up to a property, um, you know, transaction in that sense. So, insurance or if a developer was trying to sell 20 units in a building then in Pakistan they're taking an 11 percent clip on each sale so which sounds like an enormous number but the problem is they have to use a lot of staff to earn that money so you know you'd much rather earn two or three percent for doing a lot less um, but it just goes to show you that that market is actually you know some multiple I think five or seven times bigger than the or many times more times bigger than the advertising market, which interestingly, REA Group are now actually just starting to scratch and tell people that's where the growth is coming from. So this is a business I just, no one wants to own in this environment. It looks extraordinarily cheap, but it's just got yuck written all over it for most people. <laughs> and and you're going to have to go through 18 months of pain because it's a small stock. There's a lot of small cap fund managers that are losing money at the moment or their returns are really poor, so they're suffering outflows. So that when they have to sell the stock, obviously the share price falls quite a lot. And just, you know, the, the the risks in Pakistan with the currency and these sort of things are real. But I just trying to stay focused for the next five or ten years because like at the moment, that's the mean that's the mean um investment alone is worth three hundred million dollars. Mm. So that that's basically all of that's what's frontier. So basically getting the other 17 countries for free, assuming that the Pakistan currency doesn't collapse. Um, which is where most of the worry is at the moment. But in future, the, the Latin American business is where the real value is. And to give you some sort of gauge as to what, you know, the founder, Sean, thinks he can build here, he's, he says in his presentations that he's aiming to build a three and a half to $5 billion business. And at the moment, it's $350 million. So even if you lose the mean, um, obviously it's painful, but it, that's not really where the future value is. So you could still make many times your money, but you're really going to have to earn this. I've been invested at 50 cents a share since 2016, so I've owned it for six years, and it's, it hasn't even doubled. You know, it's back to yeah. it's like back to 83 cents last yesterday. And over that time, you think you could have bought Google, right, and made three or four <laughs> times your money with the safest and best business in the world. So has it been a good risk return? Absolutely not. Uh, but I'm trying to stay focused on the next five years. But it's it's certainly the stock that's of most interest to me. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. That that's why I love having these conversations because I had never heard of Frontier Digital Ventures, and it's just a fascinating company doing uh, really interesting work. And um, uh, I think that's that is just a good reminder why I love investing because you just you just learn about these things that you wouldn't otherwise know about. Like looking through their portfolio, you know, they're touching 
all corners of the world with some of these businesses they run. So, so Nathan, that's one. Um, we could talk about it more, but we're, uh, we're excited to get to a, a second company that's on your mind, on your watch list, maybe in your portfolio. Uh, what's another one that stands out for you at the moment? Yeah, I should just quickly say the worst thing about Frontier is all my friends and family are in it. My reputation's on the <laughs> line, so if it doesn't work out, I'll be skipping to Pakistan anyway, so I'll get a job there. It's the mean. Uh, so uh, the second stop for me would be... Uh, ASX stock ticker is MAF, M-A-F. It used to be called Molus, but it's um, MA oh, yeah. Financial now. So it hasn't been around very long. I think it listed in 2017. So MAF is a company that's basically a mini Macquarie. So most people are familiar with Macquarie. It's an investment bank that's become an extremely large funds management business and is really uh, a key stock in most retiree portfolios. So uh, this company used to be called Molus, and it came from a conversation that a guy called Andrew Pridham, who's also the president of the Sydney Swans, had with a guy called Ken Molus. And it's worth actually going to read a couple of interviews about Ken Molus because it's really interesting. But he started a small investment bank in America, and he really liked Andrew and said, I'd, let's start up a Molus in Australia. So I think that was 2009. And in 2017, the company IPO'd. And I think it was only like a dollar fifty or maybe a couple of bucks a share. And Andrew Pridham has had two young offsiders. I was going to tell you a funny story. Then, but that's not, <laughs> this, not that story is not for live camera. <laughs> um, and, uh, I actually have a relationship with one of the guys back in Adelaide in, in college, but uh, that's a story for another time. Anyway, these two guys have done very well. So really, it's been the three of them driving this business. And Andrew sort of stepped back a little bit recently, and he's letting these two younger guys take over. And the key to the business is, one, it's just small. And if you look at these sort of investment banking funds management businesses, it's a really reliable business model. Like some of the most fantastic businesses in the world are the Brookfields and KKRs and these guys. You can grow very big over a very long period of time. You know, whereas Macquarie is sort of, you know, very mature business and you can't expect too much growth. You know, MA Financial is really only second innings. And an interesting thing about it is the, the sort of longer it goes on, the safer it gets. Because this is a business where you're really reliant on the individuals working in the business. You know, this isn't CSL where you've got the number one blood products business in the world and you've got decades of research and development, um, you know, billions and billions of dollars behind you and it's really hard to take you on. This is a business just where the value of the business is in the people working there. And because they've been quite successful and they're getting more successful now, they're starting to um, attract more more people. And it's all about talent in, in that game, in sort of investment banking and funds management. And the good thing is they, they really incentivize people well with owning shares in the business. And that, you know, the idea that the founders and the owners and the people who work in the business own shares is really, really important to me. And in fact, it's almost probably the most important thing. I, I you know, I hate just seeing these situations where you see companies that they bring in a new CEO, they take Mike Smith at ANZ all those years ago, we're going to go and dominate Asia, even though Asia's already full of banks. <laughs> and they, you know, bank waste all this money on acquisitions. And then all of a sudden they all blow up as, as they're always going to. And then the CEO leaves with a big golden handshake. And then the new CEO comes in and they pay him just as much money to fix the mess. And, and you're almost behind where you started many years ago. And, and as a shareholder, you've made no money. So we really want the opposite of that. And, and Matt's just attracting more and more talent as it goes on. And because it's not, you can find these niches, in, you know, across all sorts of industries of where to make money. Now, obviously, things have been very good for investment banks and fund managers more recently. 
So the earnings per share are about you know between 40 and 44 cents at the moment. The share price has come back from 10 to 6. Um, and this is another one where I just I can't stress the importance of portfolio allocation enough because in that bear market a few years ago, I stuck with FDV and had most of my money there and it's done nothing. And I put some money into math, which went from a low of like a dollar twenty-nine to ten dollars. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm sitting here going like FTV was supposed to be the one, and I should be sitting in an apartment looking over Bondi Beach now, instead of living in uh, in a Sydney. Uh, and that's the difference the portfolio allocation makes. So don't skip over that part ever. But um, you know, Matt's probably trading on about fifteen times earnings now, which I actually think is all right long term. But you just got to remember that those earnings are really currently boosted by a lot of increase in values in things like hotels, which you've probably seen across the papers the last years. It's been a bidding frenzy for any pub on the east coast, mm. um, so that's been really helpful for them. There's um, you know the earnings investment banking have been great. There's lots of merger and acquisition activity. You know, and asset price have been going up. So really everything's been running as well as it possibly could. But, you know, these are cyclical businesses and their fortunes are tied to market activity and asset prices. So that M&A activity is going to slow down, obviously, and that's what the market's trying to price in. Uh, you know, I'd love another crack at this below $4, and I'm really hopeful we get a, another proper bear market next year as interest rates really actually start to impact the economy and financial markets. But it just ticks all the boxes I like. I, I really like finding small businesses with the potential to become much larger businesses over decades. You know, that's what I really enjoy about the job. You know, it's not going to happen tomorrow, and, you know, these, these sort of stocks can fall 50% many times, you know, over those periods. But when you find those those founder-led businesses, they just tend to work out much better and there's just more and more statistical evidence every year that founder-led businesses work out much better. And I've got a chart I use in my presentations about shows um, from 1990, the difference between uh, the stocks in the S&P 500, which is the major American index, how they perform versus the rest of the S&P 500. And I've only got the chart up until 2014 and the, and the, the lines look ridiculous. But keep in mind that from 2014 to 22 was a – you know, a tech boom and all those big tech companies are run by their founders, mm. uh, basically all of them anyway. So you imagine what that chart looks today. Like it is literally off the charts in that sense. Um, we don't have we don't have as many, unfortunately, in Australia, but we have plenty of good ones. Love it, Nathan. Well, we unfortunately are getting close to the uh, end of the interview. So a massive thank you to yourself and also InvestSmart for uh, sponsoring this episode. Certainly taken a lot of actionable uh, insights from it. Now, uh, if you would like more info on what InvestSmart uh, are doing, head to investsmart.com.au. We'll chuck a link in our show notes. But we always finish with three questions for all of our guests. So Ren, take it away. So Nathan, the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Look, I'm sure everyone on this show has come and told you all the ones they need to read. But the one thing I'd say, if you're you're really serious about learning more about investing and you've got a bit of time to put into it, just don't skip Warren Buffett's, uh, particularly the earlier letters to Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Um, you know, just just pick one a week or one a month to get through, and there's a period of about 20 years where there's absolutely no substitute for that far than any one book. But um, again, if you've just read chapters eight and 20 of Intel's Investor, you've read your Peter Lynch book, um, you know, and you've read some Buffett, yeah, you know, that that's really all you need to know. Anything anything past there is becomes more complicated. And, and I think from all those books I read, I actually ended up focusing too much on risk and didn't focus enough on the imagination side of what the great businesses could become over 10 or 15 years. And that's where the money's made. Mm. So I think it's one important lesson is when you come in as a new investor, you're really worried about losing money. 
and particularly as a professional, like you're around all these seasoned guys and you don't want to lose any money. Um, so you really focus on the risk, but I think you take that too far. And the real money is made in understanding what a great business is, why it can continue to be a great business for the next 10 or 20 years, and really thinking broadly about, you know, new ways it could make money or how it could develop. Because if you can have that insight, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a very valuable insight. And that's the difference between living in inner city Sydney and looking over Bondi Beach every morning. <laughs> so, Nathan, uh, the second question <laughs> we like to ask is uh, forget valuation, forget what it's trading at at the moment, uh, forget the company as an investment, just purely on the, the company, what it does and who runs it. What's the best company you've ever come across? Uh, so I'll just stick to Australia because it's more useful. But uh, you know, probably Domino's is it was just just about be up there. It's um, been quite. It's been incredible. It's incredibly well run. Uh, if you just read the detail for, for anyone listening who um, wants to read, you know, I should probably be sporking my own quarterly letters. But uh, an ex mentor of mine, I used to work with, he runs Selector Funds, and his quarterlies run about a hundred pages long, so they're they're wow. in depth to say the least. But if you really want to learn the insides of the great business in Australia, just go back and read those. It's they're the best thing on anywhere. They're the best thing you could read full stop mm. um, because they're ASX listed stocks and the detail he goes into is, is quite incredible. And um, Domino's, it just continues to grow in new countries. It's It does such a great job, you know, marrying technology with the reality of actually delivering physically a pizza. Um, you know, all the way it's developed management over years so they can actually expand uh, to such a wide range of countries and keep the wheels on. Um, you know, without falling off and blowing up a lot of money, has made them by far the number one person that the head Domino's company wants to run their different countries. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's how important that's so important now to the actual top Domino's headstock. Um, it's incredible. It's a great story too because the founder Don May started delivering pizzas and now he drives Lamborghinis around the Gold Coast. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, uh, we've had Don May on the show before, so we'll include the link to that interview in the show notes. Um, but yeah, it is a pretty incredible story. Who knew that pizzas would be the best growth stock of the 2010s? Um, but Nathan, final question. Uh, we always like to finish with this. If you think back to your earlier self starting out in markets, uh, subscribe subscribing to that Tabcorp IPO when it happened. What advice would you give to your younger self? Yeah, look, there's a few bits. One, I should have bought that house in Conroe Heights in Mount Gambia when I was 21. <laughs> and that would actually have me sitting over looking Bondi Beach at the moment, that, that one decision alone. So if you can actually get onto the property market at some point, uh, it is a good idea, but obviously we never thought interest rates would go to zero and see the growth that we have. So that was one critical mistake I made. <laughs> and the other one was not just putting all my money into CSL. Uh, you, you know, that that's probably the most practical one I think for, for most people is just find that great business. And obviously it takes, you know, a bit of work to work out what a good business is and but it doesn't it doesn't take that much work. I mean, you you follow Intelligent Investor for six months and read a few books and whatever, and you'll understand what a good business is versus a, a rubbish business. Mm. And then you just you know just add a few things in about understanding a bit about valuation and those sort of expectations and things. And then and then just really do your own work and don't listen to anyone else. Uh, that's one of the pitfalls I made. I think that there's um, you know risk becomes such a big issue in the business when I started early that it took over from thinking creatively about um, what these great businesses be. Could become because the best way to reduce risk is to buy the great businesses 
and you'd just be amazed at how much money you can make on the market over time. And and you can tell like the frustration in my voice. You know, Frontier was at three bucks. I wouldn't be so frustrated. But, <laughs> um, yeah. but you really, what people underestimate is that compounding. And you only get that compounding in the great businesses. And yes, every now and then you'll get a Whitehaven coal at $1 where you can see it's actually going to make as much money in one year as its total market cap. And it's fine to jump on those, but they're pretty rare. So again, try and get a house or apartment, just get that taken care of and find the best business on, in, you know, and in the world now. I mean, you're not even back then, you'll just, you had to buy ASX stocks, but you don't have to anymore. It's very easy to buy international stocks. So there's much higher quality businesses over there, much more of them. Um, but also, the earlier you can find them, the better. You know, if Frontier ends up being the next REA group, then finding it today is so much better than finding it in five years when everybody knows it's the next REA group. You, that's really the key with investing, I think, is to see the value before the market's priced it in. Well, Nathan, it's been fascinating uh, speaking with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Love the breakdown of um, portfolio management and the 246 rule. I'll certainly be looking at how my portfolio stacks up against that. Definitely won't match 246, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I'm sure our audience took a lot of, uh, as I said, actionable insights from that. So we do really appreciate it and look forward to uh, having you back on at another point in the future. Thank you very much. Sounds like your portfolio looks like my personal one. (laughs) 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 Thanks a lot, boys. Nice. Thanks, Nathan. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equitymates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website, where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.